So as we get ready to have a sermon, I have it written into my sermon to read this, but I'm afraid I'll forget in the middle because I don't look at my notes very often. So I'm just going to start the sermon portion of, of the worship this morning with this. Um, I've prayed from, from the pulpit. I've spoken with many of you about it, but on the 24th, there is a gay pride event happening at the J.C. Park and City Pool here in town, and it's being promoted uh, all over the place, uh, newspapers, online, and specifically being promoted, uh, is that me? Uh, specifically being promoted uh, towards children. In fact, most of the advertising in the newspaper is pictures of 8 to 12-year-olds at the past two events the last few years in Jasper, reading books about gay and lesbian partners and teaching one another what it means to be gay and the grooming nature of these events is especially deplorable. Um, not only is the celebration of homosexuality itself disgusting, but the fact that we are in many ways grooming those children to, to walk in further sin and destroy their souls. Um, Jesus had strong words about men and women who do those things. That if anyone should cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better to have a millstone tied around his neck. And so this is a very grave thing in our community. It's a threat, not just here in Jasper, but across the world and in the West, especially as we embrace homosexuality and celebrate it and promote it amongst our children. It's a threat for many reasons. One, no children can be born of a homosexual relationship, so there's just a children, but then even beyond that is what God describes in Scripture as uh, they will receive in their bodies the due penalty of their sin, that the realities of these sorts of sins are innumerable, um, but they are especially innumerable in the cause of diseases uh, that ravage the body and ultimately kill the fact that we would promote this amongst the children means that we are promoting a culture of death. And this is wicked beyond wickedness. And so for the last week, uh, with several men in the church um, and reaching out to our elders, Andrew and Renton and Tim, and then also reaching out to pastors in our community, uh, we have drafted a letter be sent to the newspapers tomorrow and to be posted on our website. And so I'm going to read that for us this morning. As of this point, unless something changes between now and then, uh, Pastor Josh LaGrange of True Vine Baptist Church is the only pastor in church who has joined us in this. Um, I've reached out to about 10 pastors in the community. A couple of them I've not heard anything back from, so they may be busy with things, have not gotten their message. I don't know. Um, but many of the pastors have written me personally and said they would not be joining me on this. Um, so that also speaks to where we are at um, in the church. So this is the text of the letter. 
it's going to be added on to slightly. I'll try to give what that is at the end. By Josh Legrand is going to write uh, two or three sentences to add on to the end of this letter. And I'll summarize what he's going to say. So here's the letter. In late June this year, Jasper will host the third annual Gay Pride event at a public park. For any town to allow such an event speaks to the moral degradation of the age. Dubois County traces its Christian roots back more than 200 years and we ought not to give up that heritage lightly. Homosexuality is not a matter of pride, because no man should take pride in his sin. Any public support for hosting it at any publicly funded facility is to our shame. The dangers of homosexuality are many. It correlates to massive spikes in many STDs, depression, and suicide. Community that celebrates homosexuality puts its citizens at increased risk of death. We do not promote drunkenness because of the known risks to the life of the person and others. We should not promote homosexuality on similar terms. Adding to the darkness of this event is the insistence by the promoters that it is family friendly and that there are specific events meant to appeal to youth. It is well known and documented that grooming is a large part of the development of homosexual sin, that it is often helped along by older men and women who urge children and teens to embrace these sins. We ought to protect our youth from these practices and ideas so that they will not suffer the very real consequences outlined above. The gospel of Jesus Christ is both grace and truth. Truth that men are wicked and act sinfully must be admitted and confessed. And the grace of God to forgive sins is found by all who admit their participation in such things. The grace of God is not a cover for darkness and sin, but rather a call to forsake former sins and live a life of holiness that pleases God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Christians should call for the City Parks Department to deny the event use of its facilities. God calls for the community leaders and companies who have supported it to publicly denounce it. And God calls for all churches in the area to call men to repentance. And then Josh is working on a small section that will say something like, and we, the pastors of these churches, urge you to come and to hear the grace of God offered for you. These sins take over a man's life, but they can be redeemed in the grace of God. So there will be some sort of addendum at the end there, not addendum, but addition at the end to appeal to the people who are in these sins directly. And that they are welcome in our churches to find forgiveness in our peace.
So I, I don't have the exact wording, but Josh and I talked about that yesterday when we both released the, the reading. So I wanted to let you know that that's happening. Um, I don't know what the effect of a letter like this will be. I would be lying to say there would be no effect. But if it gets published in any of the newspapers, um, there will be pushback. There's already been pushback from the pastors of churches in our town against this letter. That we shouldn't use the word sin. That we shouldn't uh, call men to repentance publicly. So I don't know what the effect will be. I think God is with us in this. I think this is something that we are called to do as Christians, is to call all men to repentance. And I think of this, I was talking to one pastor, urging him to join us. And he was unwilling. But I, I said, this is like when Paul goes to the Mars Hill in Athens, and he says... I can see you are all spiritual men, and you have this altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you who the unknown God is. I feel like this is a time when these events happen, where there are people gathered who think they know what the love of God is, and that the love of God frees them to do whatever they would like. And I think it's a time where we have the attention of people to say, no, that's not actually what the grace of God says. Here is what the grace of God is. And so I think it's a, a, a moment like this for us. Um, so be praying uh, that the letter would have an effect, um, not in stirring up controversy, not interested in controversy for controversy's sake. We are interested in people seeing their sin, repenting of their sin, and trusting in God as their Savior. That's what we're interested in. We're interested in a community and a town that promotes good religion. Christ honoring religion um, for the sake of our own children and the children of others. So I, I'm doing that at the beginning because I, I don't know when I would. I mean, I feel like I wouldn't forget, but I don't want it to be lightly tossed over in this sermon. So pray for us, and we will pray. I'm going to read scripture first, and then we will pray for this morning. I'm going to work to worship God. This is Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read a larger section that I'm preaching from. But I'm going to begin Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's ask God for his help this morning. Father, we pray especially that you would make us humble this week and in the coming weeks to know that we once also were to be found in the same way that the people we are preaching to are now found, which is consumed in the deadness of the trespasses and sin. We pray, Father, that you would help us this morning. Give us grace and light by the power of your Spirit. In whose name we pray. Amen. Remembering who you were kind of two aspects to the Christian life, um, both summed up in the word remember. Remember who you were and remember who you are, and the two halves of the Christian life, before and after. Um, some people will use the acronym BC, uh, before Christ, uh, to refer to their pre-Christian days, my BC days, my before Christ days. It's good to remember those things um, because one of the things it does mostly is keeps us humble. This is a doctrine given here in Ephesians 2 that's commonly called total depravity um, when it says we are by nature, we're, we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, Genesis 8 gives a similar outlook using different words, but it says uh, man's intentions from his youth are only evil continually. And so I'm going to explain a little bit more about what total depravity is and then talk about why it matters to us. Total depravity is not the, the teaching, it's not biblical to say that all men are as evil as they possibly could be. That's not total depravity. Because all men are not as evil as they possibly could be. God restrains men all the time. Even unregenerate men. He restrains them. Keeps them from doing all that their heart desires. You can think of it in just physical terms. One of the ways God restrains men from evil is by having a police and a court. That if a man is violent has murdered, or has molested, or has done any number of things, we say, hey, you who have done these things, we're going to put you in a little bitty room where you can't do them for a while, maybe forever, maybe until we put you to death. That's a restraining, and it's not a restraining just physically. That's God using the civil government to restrain men from fully giving themselves to evil. That's a physical way he does it. But there are also other ways he does it, right? People, uh, especially in other cultures. So um, many cultures around the world have very intense family ties. We've lost a lot of that in the West, although it still exists to some extent. But we're all individuals, right, in the West. Whereas there's this family shame, especially in the East, where 
Men are restrained from doing certain things because it will shame their family. They won't do the thing that they want to do because it will shame them. That's a way that God has given a gift to mankind. And it doesn't help them eternally, but it helps keep the world from being just absolute bloody mess. And that's a gift of God. Total depravity, then, is not the teaching that all men are as evil as they possibly could be. Total depravity, as Scripture teaches it, is the truth that men who are outside of Christ have their minds bent towards evil. And evil is defined as not pleasing God. Romans 14 says, anything that is not born of faith is sin. In fact, Scripture, summed up by the confession, gives three things that make a good work. What is a good work? What is something that pleases God? First, a good work has to be something that accords with God's law. Right? So you have to be obedient to the outward word. For instance, it's not ever going to be a good work to murder someone. Because that is against God's moral law. You shall not murder. So you cannot please God by murdering. But if instead you promote life, you have obeyed the law. You have done something good. And so this could be as simple as... Um, Hitting the brakes when you see a pedestrian crossing the road. You have protected life. You have not taken life. And everyone who drives a car, Christian, not Christian, generally obeys that law. Which is just a derived principle from thou shalt not murder. Hit your brakes when you see somebody is something everyone, Christian, non-Christian, does. But there are two further restraints on whether that act is actually a good work and pleases God. The first, or the second, I guess, so the first principle, according to God's law. Second principle, with faith. I quoted earlier Romans 14, anything not born of faith is sin. You actually have to have faith in God to ever hope to please Him. That if you're not in Christ, Hoping in his righteousness for your own sake, you cannot please God. Because what it ends up doing is you are trusting in your own work, according to God's law, to save you. And so you have denied the principal part of the Christian faith, which is trusting in Christ Jesus for your salvation. So to be a good work, you have to do it according to God's law, and you have to do it in faith believing. And the third part is you must do it for the end to glorify God. So this is true of Christians, right? So we do things according to moral law. We do things because we are Christians. We have faith. But sometimes we do things for our own glory, for the church's glory, for the town's glory, for the family's glory. Any of those sorts of things are not good works. The end of our work must be knowingly moving towards the glory of God. Jesus says this, right? 
Let your works shine before men that they might glorify your Father who is in heaven. Paul says it like this, whatever you do in word or deed, do all things to the glory of God. So those are the three things. Moral law in faith to the glory of God. All three things have to be present for something to be considered in Scripture a good work. So what this means is that total depravity is the teaching that since men who are outside of Christ have no faith, and men who are outside of Christ hate God, they will not seek to glorify God. And so there is no non-Christian on the face of the planet who has ever done anything ultimately to please God. Ever. That is total depravity. That their nature in themselves, what they are built, well, what they do is only and ever against God. There's a lot of technical reasons for this. We've spoken about some of them, but this is an inheritance that comes down to us through Adam, who ate and died spiritually. This is what Ephesians 2 teaches. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That it is a spiritual death that occurred on the day that Adam ate the fruit. And that spiritual death was passed down to everyone who has ever lived after that. Except Christ. That is total depravity. To give a little bit more flesh to this, um, I was reading a Charles Spurgeon sermon this week, and he says this about this idea. To give a little bit more to what I mean, what Scripture teaches. Regarding sin in non-Christians, he says this. Education may restrain it, meaning sin, Imitation of a good example may have some power in holding the monster down. But the very best of us, apart from the grace of God, placed under certain circumstances which would cause the evil within us to be developed rather than restrained, would soon prove a demonstration that our nature was evil, and only evil, and that continually. And here I think is the best. You may take a bag of gunpowder and play with it if you care to do so, but it's quite harmless as long as you keep fire from it. But put just one spark of fire into it, and then you will discover the force for evil that was latent in the innocent-looking powder. That total depravity is the idea that given the right circumstance, given the right spark, that men are capable of unbelievable evil. And we see that in a thousand ways break out at times. Saw it two weeks ago in Uvalde, Texas. The right circumstance, the right spark to the right kid at the right time on the right day, unspeakable horror. That's the doctrine. What does that mean about us? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath as the rest of mankind. We were power cakes. And yes, you probably did not do anything near what that hit in your ball today. You have not approached the evil of Hitler or Stalin in your past. Because if you had, we wouldn't know about it. Because that sort of evil is famous. But the, the teaching of Scripture is that before Christ, you were just as capable of that kind of evil those men. And it seems untrue on the surface, right? It seems like there's no way I would have ever done anything like that, even if I wasn't a Christian. But Scripture tells you differently. And it tells us many times this truth. And the reason it's so important, the reason it is absolutely vital for us to to take this hard pill and swallow it. That we, before Christ, were capable of immense, gross evil. It's because we need to know that. It was only the grace of God that saved you. That is it. Before Christ, you had nothing good other than God restraining you from becoming Hitler. That's all. And that was the grace of God. But furthermore, the great joy of salvation that we know in Christ Jesus, the faith that we possess, the hope of the resurrection, only the grace of God. By grace you have been saved. And this is not of yourselves. So that no one can boast. It's very easy to boast about ourselves. It's very easy to think ourselves somehow, some way, we figured it out and nobody else did. I've recently, in the last five years, read two books. Um, one is called Hillbilly Elegy. It's by a guy named J.D. Vance who's a senatorial candidate for the Republican Party in Ohio now. J.D. Vance was born in rural Kentucky near Hazard, and through various circumstances ended up leaving Hazard and became, I think he has a PhD from like Harvard or something. And if you ever read the book, which I actually don't recommend, um, you'll see this constant strain and the constant strain is all these people around me did all these awful things. But I saw my way through. I was able to figure it out. I got out of rural Kentucky where it's all gross and sinful and drug-laden. I got out. Look at me. You can do it too. Get educated. Get out of town. Go do what you got to do. You'll be fine. And I, my wife remembers when I read this book. And I was very upset by it. Did not like it even a little bit. And then just in the last week, uh, there's another book called Black Boy 
that was written in the 40s by a guy named Richard Wright. Um, he grew up, I think he was born in 1908, so he grew up in the teens and 20s in Jackson, Mississippi. And I haven't finished the book. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. But you could take the first two-thirds of that book and just plant it right over my family, who was from rural Kentucky, right near Hazard, just like J.D. Vance. And all these things that Richard Wright moans and complains about in his book as being unfair and all these people against him. Why did I get beaten for that? Why did I get whipped for that? And I just wanted to know the answer to this. And why did you do that? If you don't only listen to me, I'm the one who saw right through all your stuff. It was gross. I hated it. It was hard to listen to. And the real reason that took me several days to figure out that it was so hard to listen to, and it took me years into thinking about Hillbilly Elegy, is that it wasn't just that I found it gross that these men blamed everyone but themselves for everything that had ever happened to them. It's that I do that. That's why it really made me mad. We all do that. Why did you get angry and zip around the guy coming down 231? His fault or your fault? Well, it's his fault. He was going 45. The speed limit was 55. He kept slowing down, going up the hills. And then I had to just get around him. I'm angry, and it's his fault. No. No. Not his fault. This old self, which was once dead in trespasses and sins, is being continuously put to death in a Christian. And to remember that the only reason we are able to even begin putting it to death, nailing it to the cross with Christ, the only reason we're even able to do that is the grace of God. So in thinking about this event here in Jasper in two weeks, it's gay pride week. These men and women absolutely convinced in their minds that everything they do is right and everything everybody else says to them about what they do is wrong. And they are that way because they are totally depraved. And so in order to effectively actually evangelize, two things from this doctrine need to be in our minds. One, we could just as easily have been down that road. In a many different ways. It might not have been sexual sin, but it could have been any number of things that wormed their way into your heart and cast you down a stairwell of destruction. You read the book of Proverbs, and you realize the fool has many ways to fall. You would have been just as depraved as these people putting on a party in two weeks to celebrate their sin. That truth should keep you very humble when you approach people who are consumed in their sin. It should keep me humble when I approach people in their sin. That doesn't mean it's not sin. What it does mean is the compassion has to be there. Uh, Paul in Galatians says this, 
Be careful when you restore a brother in his sin, lest you stumble by the same route. This is a truth for us. The second thing that is helpful in thinking about this, specifically regarding talking to someone, evangelizing someone, is that the truth about our own self, which is that we were totally depraved, we had nothing good in us, we did not choose, we did not promote ourselves, we did not have a thing that nobody else has that we saw the right way and nobody else did. The truth is God in his grace saved us. It was a supernatural, an unexplainable event that occurred to us in Christ on the day in which we were saved. And apart from that, you would be totally depraved. Apart from an unexplainable, supernatural birth of the Spirit, you would have no hope. And so when you're dealing with someone who is sinful and, and angry that you've said they're sinful, remember, they've bought into it, hook, line, and sinker, because they're totally depraved. And that the only answer to that person who has consumed in their sin, celebrating their sin, putting it on display for the entirety of the world to see, and saying it is good. It's a supernatural, God-given grace to them. And nothing else. This doesn't mean you shouldn't try to explain, like we do in this letter, why their sins are going to cause their destruction. The book of Proverbs, over and over, talks about what happens if you follow folly? Bad things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't call things sin. You should. They are sin. They are evil. It does mean that what you should hope for at the end of the day is not that this person will have a rational response and stop their activity. You should hope and want for an entire nature the totally depraved nature of that individual to be removed and a new nature put in. An old creation, a new creation. An old self, a new self. That's what has to happen. We are not interested as Christians in men simply stopping their depravity. That would be good and it would benefit society Less people would die. But if there is no supernatural change to give them faith and have them will to glorify God in their actions, then you can have the most moral society on earth still totally depraved. Still without hope. Still without the gladness that comes in Christ. And it would be completely worthless in eternity. So we are not aiming in our letter for a moral jasper. We are aiming in our letter for a redeemed jasper. When we talk to people who are consumed in their sin, we are not simply aiming for moral change. The drug addict, the drug addict to stop using drugs. The liar to stop lying. The thief to stop stealing. More than moral is this impossibility that we are totally dependent on 
place of God. And so we have to be careful that we don't convince people like J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, and Richard Wright, who wrote Black Boy, that if they just change their lot in life, if they get out of their town, if they get educated, then they have made it. We do not want to convince people that this is the way. They will still be depraved. They will still be dead in their trespasses and sins. They'll just change. They'll morph so they're harder to see. And so when people are consumed of their sin, it is at once a complete horror to the eye. It's horrible. It's hard to watch. It's hard to stomach. It's hard to think about. But it is at that moment where the greatest unbelievable change can occur. A man who was this way is now this way. And it's unexplainable. We all know that the best testimonies are those testimonies. The ones we go to a church service to hear is the guy who says, uh, like a, a guy from West Virginia whose nickname is Freon because um, he drank some once because he was real out there. Um, murdered a guy over a motorcycle. Spent, I forget how many years, 20 years in prison. In prison, converted. Chaplaincy, prison ministry. Began reading Matthew Henry's complete, unabridged commentary on the Bible. Became Christian. Runs a halfway house in Virginia, West Virginia. Why do we like to hear those stories? Because they are a picture right in front of us of this truth. They were dead in the trespasses and sins, and everybody could see it. The trick for us is to realize that. In reality, there is no difference between the most flamboyant gay man at this parade in two weeks and your moral neighbor who doesn't attend church and keeps his lawn nice and trims his hedges and has an American flag and doesn't drink and doesn't get drunk and doesn't smoke and is very kind and goes and helps the elderly. There's no actual difference here in eternity between those two. That's what we see here. So for us this morning, remember who you were. Be humble. Remember that you are you were this close to following some debased, debauched path, just as bad as those folks in two weeks. Whatever your choice sin was, that's what it would have been. And we're not talking about moral change here. We're talking about spiritual change leading to good works that glorify God in faith. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we hope for. That's why we're here in Jasper preaching the gospel as Christians living Christianly, that's why we do it. So, remember who you were. Next week, we'll remember who we are. And hopefully, if this letter gets published, and stirs up some people who might just be angry with us, and they show up next Sunday morning, they will see the vast difference 
Futility. So it's inside Christ and it's outside Christ. Go ahead and stand this morning. Father, we are eternally grateful that you did not leave us in our sins, in our trespasses, that you did not leave us dead, wallowing in our folly and foolishness, our hatred for you. But instead, instead, you gave us immeasurable grace in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, keep us humble. Let us be haughty. Help us to realize that men are dead without hope. And that there is only one thing that can give them hope, and that is you, by the power of your spirit, raising them from the dead. We pray, Father, that these things would be on our minds as we witness to the moral man next door and the depraved man of the new prodigy. We pray that both of them to us would be the same they are outside of your son Jesus Christ and they do not know the grace of God and the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus we pray that you would give us hope and love for the people of this community and that you would help us to be witnesses to the grace of God within us in Christ's name